when you are trying to succeed within a system that wasn't built for you, it is really difficult. Uh, you know, you are usually one of few. You end up becoming the representation or the representative of your people, whatever your people may be. And then at the same time, uh, you are uh, discounted in, in, in your professional abilities uh, because uh, you are not a part of that dominant culture. So it's a really tough call. Welcome to Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in America. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the obstacles that Latinx and BIPOC individuals face when it comes to voting. I am Yvonne Resendiz Gutierrez, and I am a litigation and appellate attorney at the Portland office of Miller Nashgram and Dunn LLP, a multi-service law firm with an international reach. Today, I am honored to be speaking with Albert Lee, In 2020, he ran for Congress. He is a social justice activist who has graciously agreed to join me today on the eve of the election to discuss concrete obstacles and psychological barriers to the Latinx and BIPOC vote. Welcome, Albert, and gracias for joining us. Thank you for having me here today, Yvonne. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and the story of the first time you voted? 1992 was the uh, year that uh, Bill Clinton ran against George W. Bush. Unfortunately for me, I was 17 years old, so I couldn't vote then, but I was going to school in Omaha, Nebraska, and it was the first time that I met a presidential candidate, and I met uh, Bill Clinton out in the cornfields outside of Des Moines, Iowa. I also had the opportunity (laughs) to uh, be a part of a a student uh, televised uh, program about uh, where uh, students' heads were uh, and where they would vote if they could. Uh, so I got on the local uh, news channel. I was able to sit there. I represented the people on the left. Uh, there was a centrist and then there was somebody on the right. And uh, we were all from Creighton University. <laughs> so we were able to, to have our little 15 seconds of fame there. But uh, I actually got my first chance to vote in 1994 during the midterm election. I don't remember who I voted for. I just remember that uh, B. Ryder was the uh, representative for the first district of uh, Nebraska at that time. One of the things that we've been asking our our guests during these interviews and and, and hopefully you remember is, you know, do do you have a voting ritual? And if so, has that changed at all because of the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, Yes, I do have a voting ritual. And I got to tell you, uh, I've had the opportunity to vote in multiple states uh, throughout my life. And when I first moved to Oregon, in 2005, uh, it was the first time I got to experience vote by mail. From that time, uh, the ritual is to wait for that voter's pamphlet to come out. For me and my wife, what we do is uh, we schedule a time where we sit down at the kitchen table. We take a look, you know, after we have both independently taken a look at the voter's pamphlet and, and, and we talk about it, we discuss it. You know, our system here, our Oregon vote by mail system Uh, first in the nation is really what we should have across the board. It is something that allows uh, you to actually take the time to be really deliberative and really to uh, make your decisions. These are really uh, tough decisions oftentimes, and uh, these are life and death decisions for many. And so I'm really proud of our state for having this system uh, so that you can take a day, 
or two weeks to vote. You know, I lived in Washington, D.C. I've waited in lines for three, four, sometimes five hours uh, to vote. Um, and, you know, oftentimes where we were in D.C., I try to get up at the crack of dawn so I could be first in line so I wouldn't have to wait as long. And then that goes kind of to the point of, of, of some of the obstacles that um, uh, voters face. You know, if you've got a, a fixed time to go to work and you don't have the luxury of, of waiting in that line, well, you might not be voting. And I know that there are a lot of politicians and, and out there that are talking about having a voting holiday, but really you don't need a voting holiday if you have the Oregon vote by mail system. And even when you do have a holiday, you've got to think about it. There are still going to be people that are disenfranchised, um, you know, folks that are essential workers or folks that uh, work some low paying jobs where they don't even know uh, what day they're going to have off uh, uh, in the next two days, let alone in two weeks. Uh, those folks still uh, are going to face some hindrances. So I, I got to ask, whenever I meet somebody who who is a, a true public servant, you know, I wonder what made you answer the call to public service? And, and you know, part of that, did you even get a call? <laughs> to, did you get a call to, to do public service? Or you just decided to call yourself and, and start doing it? Uh, you know, I, th I think it's a combination. I, I, I really do. I think that uh, part of the call is the frustration that comes from within. When you see things that aren't necessarily working as they should, when you feel that you're not being represented as you should, when you see things that are going the wrong way for a vast majority of folks, while those at the very top are taking the benefits. I come from a working class background. I come from a working poor background. My background is that of an immigrant. My background is that of a military family. My, my background is of folks that are often not heard, not seen, and not included. And that in and of itself was part of the call. When you look at our representation here in the state of Oregon, we've had over 65 representatives to Congress in the House of Representatives. One out of 65 was not white. When we talk about the five representatives that we have today, 100% of them are multimillionaires. 100% of them are over the age of 65. 100% of them are white. And that isn't representative of our state. And when you do not have a diversity of representation, uh, you run into a lot of problems because each and every one of us has a blind spot. Each and every one of us uh, also has a perspective and a vantage point and a lived experience. And if we really want to see this country move in a stronger direction and a better direction for all of us, you need to include uh, those perspectives. They, first of all, help to clear away those blind spots, but they also help to enhance and provide uh, new ideas and uh, new ways of thinking uh, that can get us to a, a better America. Which of the barriers to voting that you've experienced as a Black, Indigenous, or person of color, BIPOC voter and candidate are more or less visible to the public? When we talk about um, our elected officials, oftentimes, um, the reality is we have a ruling class. We have folks that come from a certain status that come from a certain class. And because of that status and class, there's going to be sort of a monolithic view, a monolithic background, and it's hard to break through. You went to law school. 
I went to law school. We can see that the vast majority of folks that go to law school come from affluent backgrounds. Uh, not only do they come from affluent backgrounds, but they also come from backgrounds uh, that have experience in law. Their parents were lawyers or their grandparents were lawyers. Uh, they have a uh, an institutional memory, if you will, within their families that gives them that advantage to succeed in law. In addition to this, you have psychological issues that that rise as well. You know, when we talk about um, the anti-blackness within our society, that anti-blackness uh, translates into health issues from stress, from the stress of always being on guard. In addition to that, we just don't have the support systems. We don't have the organization. We don't have the institutional memory uh, to understand how to make this process work. I'm curious, when you were running your campaign, did you see that manifest itself in professionals or, or, or people of color not coming out to, let's say, canvas for you or speak out openly? Was that an issue you face? And, and if so, you know, what did you do about it or what can we do about it? When you have BIPOC members that are reaching into the professional class, you face so many different pressures and stresses. You face the, the pressures and stresses of your original family and your original background and being real to that and staying true to that, while also trying to adapt to the culture and the mores of the institution and the organization that you're working within. You need to be able to be balanced. You need to demonstrate your professional acumen. And you also need to be risk averse uh, if you want to succeed and move forward in your career. If you are going to reach out for dark horse candidates, which uh, a lot of BIPOC candidates are, uh, just because of the fact uh, that we do not have the same uh, support basis, uh, that's a huge risk. You know, uh, when you are trying to succeed within a system that wasn't built for you, it is really difficult. Uh, you know, you are usually one of few. You end up becoming the representation or the representative of your people, whatever your people may be. And then at the same time, uh, you are uh, discounted in, in, in your professional abilities uh, because uh, you are not a part of that dominant culture. So it's a really tough call. What do you say to people who might be afraid to go out and, you know, be more involved politically or, or support people, given the recent uh, incidents, you know, with people canvassing and getting, con you know, getting confused or not being welcomed yeah. or, or potentially worse. What do you say to those people about wh what they can do to get involved or how do they overcome those barriers? Yeah, those barriers are real. When I canvassed, I never canvassed alone. Uh, fact of the matter was uh, there was a fear of being called uh, cops calling on, on me, you know, Janelle Bynum had that happen to her in her own district. Uh, so I never canvass alone. I always canvass with at least one uh, volunteer or staffer. Uh, and then for our staffers, um, uh, especially staffers of, uh, and, and volunteers of color, we made sure to pair them up because of the harsh realities uh, that we face uh, in America today. One of my strongest volunteers was a young white man who came out to a canvas um, in the middle of January. And the force, first door he knocked on and gave a pamphlet to, the woman looked at him directly in the eye and said, I will not vote for a black man. I don't trust them. I don't trust them with my finances. I don't trust them with uh, money. 
and she shut the door in his face. And that was his welcome to canvassing 101. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, you know, that brings up an interesting issue too. Um, are you perceived differently by different communities? For example, you know, are like that, that individual perceived you as black. Mm -hmm. Are you perceived as, you know, Asian American, Asian American? Does it, does it change? It changes everywhere. So when I was growing up in St. Louis in the 70s and 80s, my sister and I, we weren't black enough. We weren't Asian enough. Folks couldn't figure us out. And that made them uncomfortable because people like to check boxes. People like to categorize. And uh, there was another box uh, in St. Louis. You know, it wasn't as diverse as it is today. There was you were either black or white. There was no other. Uh, within uh, African-American communities that I've grown up in, I wasn't black enough. Asian communities have a huge problem with anti-blackness. I, I sit on the board for Pano. This is something that we talk about on a regular basis. You saw the Watts right in South Central LA that pitted, you know, people that are ancestors of mine on both sides, Koreans against blacks. Being of mixed ancestry, being of mixed race, it adds an additional layer of complexity and an additional layer of, of issues. And when I was growing up, I hated being different. I hated, I just wanted to be, you know, like everybody else, you know. And as I grew up, I grew to embrace those things that made me different, unique, and me. And it eventually provided me the confidence and the courage to be the person that I am, even though on a daily basis, I get pigeonholed and labeled and and characterized and told who or what I am. Albert, I want to ask you, you know, if, if you're familiar with, you know, voter ID laws uh, in, in this country, you know, given that you've lived in, in multiple areas and how do you think that those laws have impacted the BIPOC vote? We can we can break it down like this. We've, we've got voter suppression and we've got campaigning. Voter suppression is about discouraging or preventing specific groups of people from voting. Campaigning, on the other side, uh, is all about activating voters, about persuading others to change their mind, uh, to come to your side. One is legal and the other is not. Uh, and, and when you talk about voter suppression, you got to look at the tactics. Making things inconvenient or impossible. That's what the literacy test was all about. The reduction in the number of polling places or the uh, reduction in the number of uh, or, or the time that you can vote or, you know, having variety of requirements like literacy tests or ID cards of a specific type. I think that you can have voter suppression not only, um, you know, you can you can have it through making things inconvenient or impossible. Uh, here we have a very convenient system with the vote by mail. Uh, but you can also do it through intimidation and through false information. I remember the um, anecdotes about the, the robocalls that would go out and say, uh, Republicans vote on Tuesday, Democrats vote on Wednesday. Uh, down in California, for instance, so another vote by mail state where we have uh, fake official ballot boxes being placed all over the place. Uh, that's so there to sow seeds of discontent, to uh, question the validity of the vote by mail systems. Then when you take a look at the requirements that are there in order to get registered to vote in the first place, requirements with uh, the various IDs that you need to have and where you can go to apply for those things. For poor folks, for uh, marginalized individuals, it can be difficult. It can be difficult to secure the right credentials in order to get to a place where you can actually register to vote in the first place. 
So, Albert, what do you have to say to young BIPOC mm-hmm. voters? And, and BIPOC for, for our listeners is Black, Indigenous, people of color. What do you have to say to young BIPOC voters to get out the vote? And, and why is it important to do it now? Your vote is your voice. And it is, is something that helps you to get the things that, that you deserve. Because quite frankly, we all put our collective interests into our government and then the output that gets processed is done so by our politicians. So if the wrong politician is in there that's not fighting for your interests, then the resources that you put into the government aren't going to be coming back to you. They're going to be going and being shifted to other areas. It is important for you to have a voice in the state capital to take care of funding things like our adult education system. You know, our community colleges are being funded by our state. Likewise, when you go to your county and your city officials, those folks impact you on a local level as well as metro. Uh, it impacts um, the way that your services are, are held here, your roads, your your transit, uh, even your police. I mean, we, we, we've spent a summer here with protests, massive protests, against police brutality, and we see an immense amount of money that's being funneled into police. And you've got to question and ask yourself whether that is something that is uh, a good return on investment. Uh, It is important that you vote on all levels uh, because uh, every level affects you uh, either directly or indirectly in many different ways. What can BIPOC professionals do to help, one, raise awareness about the importance of voting, two, encourage young people to vote, and three, support BIPOC candidates who are running for office like yourself? First of all, it takes courage especially when um, there aren't a whole lot of folks that look like you within your professional settings. I think that it's important that you, as professionals, get involved in a wide variety of different civic organizations. Uh, It doesn't have to be necessarily directly tied to politics, but everything is political. If you're going to be involved with uh, transit commissions, if you're going to be involved with homelessness uh, outreach or uh, taking care of a wide variety of things, even Uh, you know, uh, getting on boards for Parks and Rec. These things are all important. They're part of our community and they are part of the social fabric that we have. I think that it is also important that you reach out to young people in a variety of different ways. It, again, doesn't have to be boring civics lessons. You know, you leave that to people like me who like to talk about boring civics lessons, but you can get involved with softball or some other, you know, not right now with COVID, but with some other social activities by having your presence and then being able to discuss, uh, you know, your beliefs and your belief systems, I think will help to encourage people. Um, but you also have to do it by, by practicing what you preach by actually voting yourselves. And then lastly, when it comes to support, you know, I encourage folks to support candidates as best they can. Uh, I understand, uh, that for some, it, it comes with, uh, hazards and, and with jeopardy, but, um, you know, do the best that you can, uh, within your capacity. You can always donate in small funds. Uh, if you don't want to be more outwardly uh, supportive, you can also reach out to friends, family, and neighbors. These are things that you can do uh, without having as much exposure. And then you can also volunteer um, in other capacities that aren't necessarily going to hurt your exposure or, or put you out there in a way that might not necessarily uh, help you with your career. Young people do want to get involved. In, in different causes, right? It's not a question about their, you know, commitment to being involved. It's just 
are we not doing enough to get him involved in you know civics and in voting? Well, you know, we there there like a proliferation of a lot of youth groups, especially here in Portland. You know, everything from Sunrise Movement on up uh, are quintessentially led by 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 youth. You know, I think that we have YDSA groups, we have a whole bunch of different organizations out there, but uh, I, I think it's still vitally important that we provide some guidance. I, I remember when I was in college and in high school, I didn't have it all together. And I know some of these kids do, but the vast majority still need the guidance and, and leadership uh, uh, of elders and of, of, of those that came before them. And then at the same time, we also see, you know, politicians um, taking advantage of these groups um, and trying to employ them to, um, you know, to their own be- personal benefit or to their campaign's benefits. And, and right now, you know, the last year or two, when I was reaching out to groups, a lot of them are concerned about the thing that's most important to the youth right now, which is the future, is it's talking about the climate com- concerns, you know, the uh, devastating impacts that are going to come from our negligence, from the, the, the lack of care that we're doing today. Our boomers and our older generations, the damage has already been done. For our younger generations, by the time they're in a position to do something, it's going to be too late. It's really up to Gen Xers and millennials uh, to do something about it. Albert, how, how important is it to have people who look like you and you know, who are multiracial or, you know, and others to be the ones delivering the message and and to, you know, have the courage to run for office so that people know that that's possible. I mean, have have people shared stories with you about what it meant to see a candidate who looked like you running, running for, you know, national office? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think it's massively important. Uh, I have had countless uh, interactions with a wide variety of different people uh, that have brought up uh, and encouraged and and said thank you, thank you for doing this. It really does take people to model for other people. For me, uh, I helped out with some campaigns locally when I was in D.C. Uh, I I was on a campaign that ran against uh, Muriel Bowser when she was running for Ward Four in D.C. and uh, it was a, a younger professor from Howard that ran, and I was a part of his uh, campaign knocking on doors, learning about this stuff. It was scary. It was fun. It was exciting. And, you know, even though the campaign lost, I learned a lot from it. And it really demonstrated to me in my youth that this is something that's doable. Uh, This is something that can happen. This is something uh, that should happen. It is not set aside for a certain set of people to do. Uh, we live in a country where we have a history that says that you can be and do anything that you want. We just now have to make that happen. What is your favorite thing you've done or heard someone else doing that convinced someone to vote? You know, I, I don't have some super flashy answers to this. It's really personal. It's just having one-on-one conversations with people, telling them passionately about, you know, your reasons uh, for the vote. Over social media, it's really easy to get into these fights online with strangers. But when you're face to face with somebody and and telling personal stories and telling the impacts of what it really means to you or how it will impact you or somebody uh, that you love and you can look at somebody in the eye, I think that is one of the most powerful and most persuasive ways Uh, because we are all human and we all uh, can feel that empathy. 
I, I think it's difficult to see or feel that over screens. Uh, and I know that COVID makes it even more difficult. But when when you're able to have that connection, that face-to-face connection, or even the f- over-the-phone connection is uh, uh, second best. But um, I think that is one of the ways that you can really have an impact on somebody and to really be able to persuade them. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Albert, I'm, I'm pretty inspired to be more open about some of my fears or anxieties about helping canvas for candidates or, or be involved in campaigns. I, I hope that, you know, I, I get an opportunity to do that uh, soon and to just be more upfront with whoever's running with the campaign manager or the people there and say, hey, look, I want to help out. But here's my concern as a person of color. Like, do you have a buddy or a buddy system or or something like that to make it easier? Because if you do, then, then, then count me in. Yeah, absolutely. This has been an episode of Voting Now, Turning Rights into Reality, a new podcast series from the Oregon chapter of the Federal Bar Association in collaboration with the Oregon Historical Society. We focus on historical and ongoing barriers to voting. Want to find out more? Hit subscribe to check out our episodes and visit the website for the Oregon Historical Society at ohs.org and at oregonfederalbarassociation.com. I am Ivan Resendiz Gutierrez. I am one of the hosts. Frame Masters is our creative director. Miranda Schaefer, our producer. Gabriel Granillo is our editor. Special thanks to Fiona McCann and to our host, Celia House. Thank you for joining us today. I'm, I'm so honored to, to be doing this. I wish we could have been in person, but thank you for your honesty and, 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 for, and for your vulnerability. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yvonne.